Please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 10. You'll find the notes in the bulletin and the insert. Luke chapter 10. With our time left this morning, we will be studying the, the first part of the parable of the Good Samaritan. Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. And this is an uh, important and remarkable passage, a very well-known passage. And this parable, uh, probably one of the better-known stories in the New Testament Gospels. And as we look at it, I, I trust the Lord will have much for us. Let's begin by reading Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. Behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him, and beat him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring oil on, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. It's a remarkable passage. It takes place over two exchanges with Jesus and this lawyer, and the exchanges follow a pattern. If you look at your notes, we're only going to look at the first exchange this morning, what's seen in verses 25 through 28, but I put the outline for the second exchange because it's identical. They're, they're parallel. They, they follow a pattern. The pattern goes like this. Luke tells us the motive of the lawyer. In the first instance, to put Jesus to the test. In the second instance, to justify himself. And then the lawyer poses Jesus a question. Then Jesus gives a counter question. Then the lawyer gives an answer. And then Jesus gives a final word of command involving go do this. That's the pattern that we get for this parable of the Good Samaritan found within this. These two dialogues, these two exchanges with Jesus and this lawyer. I also want to take a moment to look at the larger context of this passage. Jesus has just finished rejoicing in the Spirit that His Father, if you look back in, in chapter 10, verse 21 and 22, 
I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. And the way Luke interrupts that narrative with, and behold, he's setting it up within this context. Here is one who in the society, this lawyer, would be deemed as wise, a master of the law. From what we can tell from outside the Bible, these are people who almost certainly had the entire Old Testament memorized. Additionally, a body of rabbinic writings nearly twice as large as well. These were masters of the Old Testament text, held in high regard by the people. Here is one who, on the standards of man, is wise. And yet Jesus has praised his Father that he has hidden spiritual truth from such wise people. And we'll see that demonstrated in this passage. So let's begin by looking at this first exchange and the question this lawyer asked Jesus. Now we know he asks it disingenuously. He has not come to Jesus full of conviction, full of concern. We're told he's putting Jesus to the test, yet the question he asked Jesus is of the utmost importance. It's a question that every one of us should be asking ourselves. It's a question that's worth much time in, in considering which is what or how may I inherit eternal life? And so despite the fact that the lawyer's motives are less than perfect and pure, there's a lot here to, to see as we think about that. And I'd encourage you as we look through this first exchange this morning to, to ask yourself that question as well, to re-examine it, even if you think you know the answer. So let's dive in. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? And it begins with the lawyer standing up. Now, there's some hypocrisy here. He's, he's addressing Jesus standing, which is a, a way of respect. He calls him teacher. It's a respectful title. And let you, Luke tells us what his motives are. This is a test. This is a trap. This is an opportunity to, to sit in judgment on Jesus. Now, we've seen lawyers and scribes in Luke's Gospel so far, and without exception, they've been posed in a negative light. They're first introduced in chapter 5.17, and, and if you read through Luke, you'll notice that the term lawyer, scribe, and teacher of the law are used pretty much interchangeably. That Luke will use those categories pretty much interchangeably. This lawyer is almost certainly a scribe, a teacher of the law. So in Luke 5, when Jesus is going to heal the, the paralytic, it says, in those days as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there. And that's when they first introduced into Luke's narrative. Then a little later in 521, that same group that were just called Pharisees and teachers of the law are called the scribes and the Pharisees. And they become to question it because they get offended when Jesus says, your sins are forgiven you. And they say, who is this who can forgive sins? So the group first introduced as the scribes, of, I mean, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees are then called the scribes and the Pharisees. In chapter 6, verse 7, the scribes and the Pharisees began to watch him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. Then we get the summary statement in Luke 7.30. The Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by John. And then Jesus, just a few weeks ago, as we were looking at Luke 9, as Jesus reveals His knowledge that He will suffer and die, He must go to Jerusalem, says this, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed. And on the third day, 
raised. So they began looking for a way to trap him and accuse him. And here, one of that group stands up to put him to the test. He looks respectful. He talks respectful. Luke gives us his motives. He's not respectful. Not respectful at all. So what is that motive? To put Jesus, use your blank, to the test. To put Jesus to the test. There's a supreme irony here. As Jesus turns the tables on him and asks him his reading of the law, he'll quote Deuteronomy 6. He'll quote the love of the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and might. A little later in Deuteronomy 6.16, it says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. There's a great irony. This, this man unwittingly is going to cite the law. This man who reveres the law is breaking the law through this very act as he puts the Lord God to the test as he would presume to be the one to judge Jesus. That's, that's, that's the challenge here. Is We're tempted. We, we want to put God in the dock, in the witness stand, in the defense position. And we want God to answer our questions. So why do you allow sin and suffering in the world, God? Why didn't you heal this person, God? Why do you allow this war, God? There's tremendous presumption. This man does not know what he is doing. He's putting Jesus to the test. He would place himself above Jesus. Now, what I love about this is Jesus isn't going to tolerate this or put up with this for very long at all. And he asks him a question. And notice the emphasis of his question. What shall I do? That's your blank. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? And that emphasis on doing here rings through this passage. He asks, what must I do? In verse 28, Jesus' answer, do this. And then when he asks, who is my neighbor? And he goes through the parable of the Good Samaritan. Jesus asks him, who then proved to be this man's neighbor? The man says, and your English translations won't show this, but the Greek is the one who did mercy. The one who did mercy. My ESV says showed mercy, but... That's what he did, the emphasis on doing. And then Jesus said, go, do likewise. So the question, this man's got in his mind, he understands the law, there, there's something I need to do. And, and it becomes clear in the Greek, literally in the Greek, having done what, I inherit eternal life. What's the thing? He's looking for something you can draw a circle around, something concrete, something absolute. What, what do I have to do? What thing, having done it, once it's done, once it's complete... I can inherit eternal life. And that reference to inheriting eternal life looks back to Daniel chapter 12, where Daniel writes, At that time your people should be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. This lawyer is aware of the resurrection, both the resurrection of the just, the righteous, to life, and the resurrection to death and corruption. He's aware of heaven and hell. And what he's basically asking in essence is, having done what, can I share in, can I participate in, can I inherit the resurrection of life? That's what I want to know. That's a great question to ask. He's not asking it sincerely. We would do well to ask that sincerely. He's aware there's a judgment. He's aware there's a hell. He's aware not everyone's going to receive this. Uh, contrary to much popular opinion where everyone pretty much, except maybe Hitler and some really, really, really bad people, everyone's getting into heaven. That is not the, the understanding of this scribe, this, this lawyer. Jesus certainly would agree with him on that point. No, there is a resurrection of life and there's a resurrection of death. And there is a judgment. He wants to know, what do I have to do? What do I have to do? He wants to do something. 
What I love about this is Jesus, even though this man's putting him to the test, immediately takes control of the test and flips it around. Jesus' answer and counter question comes next. He takes control of the test. I love this. There's a great irony here. The man stands up to test Jesus, and before you know it, the man's answering Jesus' questions, and Jesus is evaluating him. You, you've, you've answered correctly. <laughs> I, I love it. The, the Master, the Lord, is not about to let anyone sit in judgment on him. Rather, he takes the reins, he takes control, and he asks a counter question. He takes control of the test, and he points the lawyer to the law. He points the lawyer to the law. And I want to pause here and just challenge you to consider that. Why does Jesus do this? I mean, how many of you, if someone came up to you and said, I'm, I'm really interested in how I, when I die, I can have any confidence that I will, I will share in the eternal life and avoid the judgment. How many of you would point someone to the law of Moses? That's what Jesus does here. This isn't the only time he does that. A little later in Luke's Gospel, um, when the, uh, the rich young ruler came to him in chapter 18, he said, good teacher, same question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. Jesus points them to the law. Why is that? I will freely acknowledge Jesus does not always point people to the law when they come to him. Not at all. There are many instances where Jesus calls people to faith, but it's, it's helpful to stop and consider why does Jesus sometimes, when they come and ask him these questions, point them to the law, and why does Jesus sometimes point them to himself and the faith in him? Well, I think Luke has already given us that answer. Um, see, the... Uh, the law, point one, reveals God's holiness and sinfulness. I mean, God's holiness and our sinfulness. God's holiness, that's it. Very precisely, God's holiness and our sinfulness. We've already heard in Luke's Gospel, if you remember when, when Jesus went to Levi's dinner party, the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled. He eats with sinners and tax collectors. And Jesus, hearing of it, said this, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick... I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. We've been told the scribes and the Pharisees do not view themselves as sinners, but as righteous. Why does Jesus point this man to the law? He's not aware of his own sinfulness, not as he ought to be. He's not aware of God's holiness, not as he ought to be. And what we see again and again in, in Scripture with Jesus and his interaction with people is those who are proud, those who are self-righteous, get the law. Those who are humble, those who are brokenhearted, get grace and mercy. So we see the sinful woman come in weeping, washing Jesus' feet with her tears and her hair. And Jesus tells her, go in peace, your faith has saved you. No law. There's someone broken over their sin. There's someone contrite. Here's a man who wants to sit in judgment of Jesus. Here's a man we're about to totally told, wants to justify himself. He gets the law. And that's helpful for us to think about as we share the gospel with others. Martin Luther, we, we heard a hymn he wrote, said that if he had an hour to talk to someone of the gospel, he'd, he'd spend 45 minutes talking with the law with them, and 15 minutes bring them to Christ. In today's culture, where sin is considered an outdated notion, we're all encouraged the self-esteem gospel to feel good about ourselves and to, to, be, to be pleased with ourselves and to get participation trophies for everything. I, I think we would do well to follow Jesus' example. 
that we, we need an awareness of sin. The law does that. The Apostle Paul writes this in, in Romans chapter 7. Is the law sin? By no means. If it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had said, do not covet. Then in verse 13, he said, the law produced death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. One of the functions of God's law is to reveal sin in all of its ugliness, in all of its, in all of its corruption. And you start reading through the Old Testament. It's, I mean, I got a manuscript going through Ezekiel. And it gets through redundancy really clear. We are sinful. We are not good people who do bad things. We are bad people through and through. Jesus takes this self-righteous lawyer to the law. The law not only reveals God's holiness and our sinfulness, but also reveals God's grace, our need of God's grace and forgiveness, our need of God's grace and forgiveness. I want to look at that in a few minutes. I want to move past this and come back to that concept a little later. That's, that's what the law does, among other things. And that's why I believe Jesus takes him here. Because, because this man needs to be broken. He, he needs to be humbled. He needs to be repentant. He needs to be contrite. So Jesus points him to the law. And he asks him, okay, you're a legal expert. What is written in the law? How do you read it? The man gives an answer. He says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. He said, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. A lawyer here actually does show remarkable understanding of the law. He gives a summary of it, which in Matthew is exactly how Jesus summarized the law. In, in uh, Matthew 22, 34 to 39, this is exactly how Jesus, the first and greatest commandment, the second is like unto it. And it's a citation of Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus um, 19. Turn... turn quickly to Deuteronomy chapter 6. I just want to look at that. This is one of the central passages for, for Jews in Jesus' day. For in our day, you know, John 3.16 is generally considered the central sort of gospel passage. This is, this is the Shema. This is the, the great monolithic, monotheistic statement of Israel. Deuteronomy chapter 6, starting in verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. These words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign in your hand. They shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house. And I'm your gates. Now keep, keep your finger here. Don't, don't leave Deuteronomy just yet. So he cites that first command, which summary says that we are to love the Lord with the totality of your being. So if we're asking the question, what does God require? What do I have to do to, to get life when I die? What do I have to do to, to attain to the resurrection of life? You and I need to love the Lord our God with every fiber of our being at every moment of our existence. That's, that's what God requires. All your heart, all your soul, all your mind, every thought, every movement of every muscle, every strength, everything being done to honor God. 
this is why it's important for us to go to the law to understand God's holiness. God does not say you need to give it your best shot. God does not say you just need to try hard. You seem to be better than Hitler. That's general, I only mentioned Hitler because that's what we generally want to do is we look to somebody else, we figure that we're better than them, and so we're okay. The law points us to God and says, measure yourself against that standard. Measure yourself against the perfect holiness of the thrice holy triune God. Love him with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, in every moment of every day. That's what God requires. You want to know how you can earn, merit, deserve, life? That's the first requirement. Not done yet. Then he quotes Leviticus 19. In Leviticus 19, it says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So first requirement, perfect, total devotion vertically to God with every bit of your being. And then, it's a demonstration of that first commitment to God. We give love, we, we serve and love those who bear His image to our fellow neighbor. And, and that is what God requires. God requires a perfect and total devotion and service and obedience to Him. And then He wants us to demonstrate that, to live that out, to incarnate that by loving those who bear His image. That, that is what God requires. That is God's requirement. Perfect, total, full service and devotion to Him with all your being. And then modeling that by loving your neighbor as yourself. That, that is what God requires. Notice that Jesus agrees with this summary of the law. He's got it right. That, that is the standard. That is the standard. Interestingly, by the way, that's a pretty good summary of the Ten Commandments. If you look at the Ten Commandments, the first four deal with God. No other gods. You honor His name. No graven images. Keep His day. And then starting in the Fifth Commandment, it's all about how we treat our neighbor, our brother, our sister. So the lawyer's answer is correct. He summarized the law correctly. That's good as far as it goes. Good as far as it goes. Keep your finger in Deuteronomy. So Jesus responds, you've answered correctly. Now now again, he's now the judge. He's the one evaluating this man. This guy stood up to, to imagine his maybe confusion. He stood up to put Jesus to the test, and in very short order, Jesus is the one evaluating him. Jesus is the one giving a report card grade for him. No, you've done well. Good answer. Do this and you will live. Now notice the emphasis. It's not know this, believe this, do this. It's one thing to be a lawyer and to know the law. It's one thing to be able to quote the Bible, quote Scripture, discuss Scripture, read Scripture. Jesus doesn't tell him to do any of that. Right back to his question, what do you have to do? You need to do that. You need to do this. And Jesus is willing to let that hang there. And notice, if it weren't for the lawyer picking the conversation back up again, the conversation would be over. And after the second round, when Jesus says, do this, likewise, the conversation ends. So we move on in Luke's narrative. The man rises up, wants to test Jesus. What is the thing I must do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, hey, what's, what's your reading of the law? What's the law say? You know. You know what God requires. And God quotes it correctly. And Jesus affirms the lawyer's summary of the law. And then he urges the lawyer to do this 
and live. Or is this the lawyer to do this and live? Now, I think here's the crux of where Jesus is going. And I want to take the last few minutes here and think through. Now, I said earlier, the law is meant to show us our need of grace and forgiveness. The law is meant to show us our need of mercy. Why did Jesus do it this way? Because he's taking him to God's standard. And when you properly understand God's standard, when you, when you think through it, and when you realize what God calls us to, what you ought to do is realize there's no way on earth you can do that. I mean, just take the first commandment, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. If you and I are honest... I'll quote R.C. Sproul here. You and I haven't done that for three seconds of our entire life, let alone every moment. If you stayed in Deuteronomy, turn to Deuteronomy 10. I want to show you how the law itself, without even the New Testament's commentary, demonstrates this. Because in Deuteronomy 10, we read a repetition of this command in chapter 6. So, 10, 12. And now, Israel... What does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all His ways, to love Him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. That's pretty much a summary of what he said in chapter 6, but keep reading. Behold, to the Lord your God belong the heavens, and the heaven of heavens, the earth, with all that is in it. Yet the Lord set His heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after him, you above all the peoples as you are this day. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart. Be no longer stubborn, for the Lord your God is a God of gods and Lord of lords, great and mighty and awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice the fatherless and the widow, and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. So what Moses is saying here is this. Because what God requires of you is this love, this fealty, this devotion, this obedience, you can't do that with the heart you currently have. And then he gives them this command, which, which is, I think, meant to be befuddling. Therefore, circumcise your heart. Change your heart. You know, cut your heart deep. And I think, Jew reading this, how, how, how do I do that? How, how on earth do I do that? If, if it's going to take this new heart to love God the way I'm supposed to, how do I do that? And, and what's interesting in Deuteronomy is Moses lets that hang for 20 chapters. Moses lets that hang for 20 chapters. Jump to chapter 30. Deuteronomy 30 after Moses first says, okay, look, remember, God wants you to love Him with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, okay? And if you're going to do that, you're going to need a new heart. You're going to need to circumcise your... So go go circumcise your heart, Israel. He just lets that hang. And then in chapter 30, after he's laid out the blessing, the curse, after he's laid out the rewards for obedience, the cursings, the disobedience, chapter 30 begins like this. When all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among the nations where the Lord your God has driven you. Now just stop there. Moses is under no illusions that this Mosaic law is actually going to work and bring him home. Moses knows perfectly well this, this law project is going to end in 
dispersion. The curses that he listed are going to come upon them. Israel will be faithless. They will be unable to keep this covenant, and God will scatter them to the nations. He doesn't say if. He says when. When you call them to mind among the nations, the Lord your God has driven you, and return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice and all that I command you today with all your heart, with all your soul, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you, and he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If the outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you, from there he will take you, and the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, that you may possess it. He will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. Now get this in verse 6. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and may live. What's the ultimate solution to this demand in chapter 10? You can't do it. You won't be able to do it. And you need to turn to God and cry out to Him and beg Him to do it for you. The law reveals our need of grace and mercy. A Jew reading this, an Israelite reading this through Deuteronomy, that's what I need. I need God to circumcise my heart. I need God to change my heart. That's what the law is supposed to do. That's, I believe, what Jesus is trying to produce in this man. What do you need to do to inherit eternal life? Perfectly love God with every essence of your being at all times and demonstrate that love to your fellow man, your neighbor. What should the proper response be? I, I, I can't do that. I need God's grace and help. That's the proper response. If you're here this morning and you're wondering, what, what do I have to do to etern, inherit eternal life? You've got two options. You can perfectly obey God, love God, in devotion to God at all times, perfectly love your neighbor in all times and all places. If you do that, you're good. Romans 2 says as much. God will repay with honor and glory those who obey Him. But, but we are all sinful. All of us like sheep have gone astray. All of us have become unclean. All of us deep down inside have corruption in our hearts. And that, and that first path will not work. And so we need God to do a work in our hearts. You know, a little later in Luke's Gospel, listen to this, he told a parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. It's Luke 18. And treated others with contempt Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and one a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get, but the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God... Be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. One who humbles himself will be exalted. You, you want to know how you can inherit eternal life? You want to know how you can attain the resurrection of life? You've got two options. You can perfectly love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might, with all your strength, 
at every moment of your life, you can perfectly live for your neighbors yourself, and you will be good. Or you can cry out to God for mercy and forgiveness and help. Those are your options. We've already seen this in Luke's Gospel. You remember the sinful woman who came in and scandalized Jesus' host? And Jesus vindicates her. It's Luke 7, 47. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. She loved much, but he was forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. There are two ways to inherit eternal life. You can earn it and deserve it through a perfect total, absolute, unbroken obedience to God and His law. If you're able to pull that off, you're good. Good luck with that. Or, you can trust in faith to the one who did that for you. But we celebrate Christmas, we sing of His birth, but why, why did Jesus come? The, the baby in the stall grew up, you know. And he lived that sinless life. The thing that I just described, the perfect love, perfect obedience, perfect fealty, loyalty, and perfect demonstration of love to his fellow man, Jesus did that at every moment of his life. That high, high standard, that I just he did that. And he did it on our behalf. And he went to a cross and he was delivered over into the hands of the Pharisees and the scribes and the lawyers and, and the chant, crucify, crucify of all the people. He was nailed to a cross where he... Not only had he just lived the life we needed to live, he then paid the penalty for the lives we do in fact live. He bore our penalty on the cross. He died for our sins. He rose again on the third day. And, and again and again in the Gospels and in the New Testament, we're told that if we will turn, if we will trust, if we will turn to him, we can be forgiven. We can have that grace. God can circumcise our hearts, give us a new heart. Jesus can say to us, like he did to that woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Now that's, that's what they're supposed to do. Jesus points this lawyer to the law, hoping the law will do its work. But there is another way to respond yet. Instead of realizing the enormity of what God requires, the absolute standard, the insurmountable goal, we can be tempted to simply lower the bar some and lower the bar some and lower the bar some to something we can manage. And we can say, well, maybe we can make this work if we just figure out who is my neighbor. We can just draw that circle small enough. Maybe we can make this work. That's the temptation, to trust in ourselves. If you lower the bar to simply be a decent chap, good sort of person, better than that guy over there, you might trick yourself, deceive yourself into thinking you can do this. That's what this man is trying to do. We know that in the next verse. Desiring to justify himself. He said, who is my neighbor? And we'll look at that next week. But that's the trap. The trap is to, to, to deceive ourselves. These are the people that God has blinded. We just read about last week. Jesus praises his Father. The wise he has blinded. He's blinded to thinking that he's read God's law. This guy who can quote Deuteronomy, can quote Exodus, can quote Leviticus, somehow has tricked himself into thinking he can do that. Please don't make that mistake. Please don't take God's law and God's requirement and, and twist it into something you think you can do. 
There, there is free grace. There is mercy. There is forgiveness. That, that's, that's what Christmas is about. But it's for those who recognize their corruption, who recognize their failing. The, the gospel is not, God's not as holy as he is, and you're not as bad as you think you are. The gospel is God is holy, 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 and you are sinful, sinful, sinful. But there's a great Savior who came to do what we could not do. Trust Him. Let's, let's pray. Lord God, we rejoice that You have revealed truth to little children. That You have given us eyes to see and ears to hear. And Lord, it's, it's, I trust that those of us who gathered here today, we, we recognize and see our own sinfulness. We, we are under no illusions that we can merit on our own eternal life, that we could ever truly deserve to stand before you. And yet, Lord, if we're honest in our hearts, we recognize we all have that same desire to justify ourselves. We don't want to humble ourselves. We don't like to recognize that we are helpless. We don't enjoy crying out for mercy. So, Lord, by your Spirit, grant that we might cry out to Christ. We might recognize the impossibility of ever, in our own strength, meeting your standard. Oh, Lord God, let us receive the baby in the manger. Let us receive the Lord who reigns, who came precisely because we could not. Jesus' name. Amen.